Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Coffee with a friend is like capturing joy in a cup. Welcome to the Coffee with Jenny B podcast, hosted by Jenny B, a lover of all things coffee. Each week, Jenny will chat about connecting over coffee, what brings her joy, and everything in between. A lot can happen over coffee, so grab a cup, sit back, and enjoy. Now here's your host, Jenny B. Hello and welcome to the show. Do you know if you are left-brained or right-brained? Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that you have two brains like Steve Martin in The Man with Two Brains, which is kind of a cool movie, but I digress. It means that part of your brain is more methodical, analytical. That is the one that is solving problems, tends to be more technical. And so when you have those characteristics, you're known as left-brained. Now, right-brained people tend to be more artistic, more creative, more in the flow versus something that is a little bit more rigid. But what if you fall between the two? So your equal parts, left brain, so the methodical, analytical, very rigid rules and regulations and, and so on and so forth, but you're also right-brained and you're artistic and you're creative. My guest today is someone who definitely falls in the middle, 50-50% of left brain and right brain. It's Sharon O'Leary. Sharon is a senior project manager. She's also a master coach. She is an artist. She paints and she creates gorgeous bouquets out of brooches and jewelry pieces And she's also an end-of-life doula. She's also a lover of coffee and a lover of wine. And she's been my friend for more than 10 years. So I'm happy to introduce Sharon. Hey, Sharon. Hey, Jenny. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm well. I'm so happy to be here. I'm really excited to be able to share a little bit of the right side, left side brain uh, (laughs) mentality methodology with you. So I'm hoping I have some really interesting stories to tell today. So let's start with how we met. You were renting a studio uh, with uh, your friend Pearl Angelini, and it was on King Street. And Pearl was having an open house. I'm trying to remember how I knew Pearl, but it, it doesn't matter. We've known each other for a long time as well. And she was having an open house and I popped by and that's when I met you. And I want to say that we had that instant chemistry. We connected and we had the same interest. And I started coming back to the studio and I loved what you were doing with your jewelry pieces and your painting. And and so let's start with that. How did you get started in with painting. Let's start with painting first. I agree. I'll just back up a second uh, to to just speak to the moment that we met. You know, I saw this fiery little redhead walking down the hall, and there was uh, a lot of people at the open house, but definitely we, we connected automatically right away. And, you know, I'm happy that it's blossomed into a great relationship that leads us here today to talk a little bit about, about artistry and other fun things. So, so my art 
my art history, I guess, if you want to call it, goes way, way, way back from when I was uh, a schoolgirl wanting to be first uh, a Disney animator when I was about 10 years old and always was focused on drawing and sketching and always wanted the 24 pack of Laurentian pencil crayons, you know, when I, when I was in school, which, which was tough for my parents to swing because they had six kids, right? So there was a lot of us. When I was about 12, they found out through uh, someone that my mom knew at work at the St. Bonifice Hospital that there was a retired art teacher in the Norwood Flats. And they inquired about classes. They signed me up. And I think the lessons were about $1 a lesson for a couple of hours. That was a long, long time ago. But I still remember going to that lady's house. I remember walking into this house in the Norwood Flats and the smell of turpentine and linseed oil and oil paints. Just it, it, it amazed me. And when I would go walk through her house to go to the washroom, she had little oil paintings framed all over her house. And it was like a dream come true for me at, you know, 12 years old, someone wanting to be an artist. She taught me about perspective and mixing paint colors and how to create landscapes and still lives and uh, really just as a kid. So it was a fascinating time for me. That's how I started. Over the years after that, it kind of waned and then I got away from it and then I eventually came back to it. But that was the beginning of passion for me. I still when those smells come to me, it brings me back to that little house in Norwood. I had a student last year come to my studio for one-on-one instruction and mentorship from me, and he was painting in oils, and it just took me right back to that moment. It was just so delicious. Oh, I can imagine. And I, I've never actually painted with oils. Uh, I've only painted with watercolors, and, and the only time that I've painted is with you, and I have a beautiful painting that I did. It was about a month ago, I guess. It's a beautiful, uh, it, was it a dahlia? Uh, it was a chrysanthemum. We, we used acrylics for those, beautiful Liquitex acrylics. So you, uh, your painting is gorgeous, by the way. Oh, thank you. So yes, a chrysanthemum and not watercolors, it's acrylic. But, you know, it's interesting because I'm also a little bit like you in the sense that I've got the left brain, right brain, and sometimes I'm more one than the other, depending on the situation, which I, I suspect you are as well. But when it came to painting, so you had created a painting that we could uh, use as a model. I was starting to paint and, you know, I got into my head and I like, uh, I don't know what I did, uh, what to do and, and I don't know what I'm doing. And so I tried to be perfect. And I remember you saying to me, like, just let it go. Just let, let it flow. And I couldn't let it flow. I, and I'm not sure why. And I, I think maybe it's the analytical part of me that got in the way. Yeah, that's that's a great point. And over the past numerous years, as I've had groups of people or couples come to my studio for a paint class, it's one of the toughest things for people to do is to kind of let go and let loose, as you put it so elegantly, just let it flow. Because of so many of the things that we do in our day-to-day and throughout our lives are always like highly planned and organized, and there's a routine and there's a structure to everything that we do. So bringing people into a space where you're trying to coach them and, and encourage them to just really kind of be organic and get messy. I, you know, I love to call it getting authentically messy. It's a really hard thing for people to wrap their heads around until about 45 minutes goes by, you know, and then sometimes maybe aided by the help of a glass of wine or two. People really get into building that image and that picture that they're painting. You've, I find that after about an hour, People are just in the zone. You, you finally lean into the enjoyment and really the pure joy of just being in creativity and not thinking about it. And that's where you see people really start to shift and uh, they just light up. I agree because uh, after a while, I, I was able to let go and really enjoy the process and actually sit back and, and not be over, over critical of what I did. You know, oh, I missed that or that's not working. You know what? It's great. I love it. And I have it hanging behind me. And so every time I come into the studio to record a podcast, I have it hanging behind me and it just brings a smile to my face. I want to go back to 
what you were saying about being structured. Now, part of also what is in your vast repertoire of experience and so on is that you are a senior project manager. Now, when did you get started with that? And I guess my second question as part of that is, does being the artistic uh, and losing yourself in the painting and so on help to deal with the, I guess, the rigors of working in uh, project management? Absolutely. I have, uh, as of today, <laughs> been working in technology for, for about 22 years. So in January of 2000, I was working at a francophone credit union on Provence, working as a teller and a single parent and sort of looking for something more. You know, I wanted to expand my horizons and there was way more that I wanted to do. And so there was uh, a job posting that uh, a friend of mine, actually a relative of mine, had seen and it called for a bilingual individual to take on a technical support role for a small startup company in Winnipeg, which uh, just as a, you know, an offside comment that that company ended up being very, very successful and then had a public offering and was sold. And it was just a a really great success story for Winnipeg. For anyone who ever wants to look up EISI, the gentleman who started that company has just recently started a new company called Conquest Planning after being retired for several years. So I started my job there in January 2000 absolutely terrified (laughs) of what I was going to do. That company developed financial planning software, which eventually we sold and customized for a whole lot of uh, huge financial planning uh, companies all over the United States and Canada. I spent a lot of years, about eight and a half years there, working my way up from that tech support role that I took on because I was bilingual and moved into a training role and then subsequently into a PM role, which really uh, kicked off my future career in technology. So I learned so much in in that company over the course of a, a little bit more than eight years. Initially, you know, really kind of terrified of what I was doing, not knowing what I was doing. But definitely that company, when I started as employee number 52, and then it it got bigger and bigger. But that company not only was filled with brilliant technical minds, but most of those people also had a creative side, you know, much like, like I did. So I always approached my work and my conversations Also, as an artist, kind of how I was hoping to move through life was primarily as a working artist. But, you know, I found that the softness of human emotion and the ability for people to be creative, it didn't disappear within the technical environment. And when you would have conversations with people outside of the technology and you know, the really uh, practical conversations, I found that, you know, so many of those individuals who maybe did not consider themselves creatives were, they were also, you know, cooks and amazing communicators, creative coders. Some of them were really great with design. Some of them were fashionistas, the way that people, you know, showed up uh, at work, how they were dressed was very, very creative. There were gardeners and musicians, you know, all of these really creative minds who came to this technical space to focus on building software. So that juxtaposition of, you know, the creativity and the technology is something that I was really passionate about in my first uh, technology venture. And I have taken that attitude and really that style of managing projects and project teams with me over the last uh, 22 years into everything that I do. I love hearing about that. And you're right, because you don't have to be very, you know, I'm very technical and I'm, you know, I, I can't be outside of that realm of being technical, but the creative part of it. And, and I like to think in what you were talking about in terms of you know, taking that creative side and using it to help you solve problems. Because I find that I do that as well for me, because when I run into a situation, it can be anything from, 
I double book myself to now I've got to figure out what to do because I don't have a car or whatever. So something, you know, small and insignificant to something really major, my brain immediately goes into, okay, so how can I solve this problem? And I start thinking creatively outside the box. I know that's kind of overused, but truly that's what it is. It's okay. This isn't going to work. So plan A doesn't work. And I go all the way to plan Z until I find a solution. And I dig deep and I persevere and it's like, you know what, I'm not going to let this go until I find a way to fix it. And, and sometimes I surprise myself and my husband, he's like, you know what, I marvel at all these ideas you come up with. Like, I have no idea where you're getting these things. And I'm like, I don't know, they just come out of thin air. So I think that's great. And, and what, you know, what a great ability and gift that you have in doing that. Yeah, and it's not our fault. I'll just step back a little bit. You know, as children, as we go through school, grade school and middle school and high school, we're taught to do things in a certain way. And it's often by rote. And there's often, you know, really standard process in how we solve a problem. Point A to point B, sometimes point A, point B, point C, whatever it may be, get the facts, trying to figure out where the gaps are, et cetera, et cetera. But quite often, the problems that come to projects, technology projects, business projects, are not always an A to B type of a solution that you can find. So when my teams come to me or individuals come to me with a problem or an issue or something's burning or something's on fire, <laughs> this is sometimes, you know, if it's um, a production issue in a technology environment, there's definitely is a really a systematic way to resolve that all hands on deck. But sometimes, you know, some more nebulous problems, I always ask those individuals, well, what do you think we should do about this? Or what would happen if we turned that issue upside down and work backwards to try and find a solution to it? Or what is the piece that's missing? We have all of the facts, but this is still happening. So, so there's something missing here. And what is it? And sometimes we don't know. But it's in being okay as well with the unknown. Uh, and then trying to find your way around that. That's the, where the beauty lies in really trying to find root cause to really unique situations that might bring you a problem or an issue. So I, I think the ability to be able to uh, stretch yourself, pull some new dance moves, I like to call it, being okay with the idea of we're going to try to solve this problem in a different way. Even, even the whole idea of turning something upside down to try and figure it out freaks people out because it's not how they're normally used to solving problems. It's been really successful for me and it, it's really allowed, you know, me to um, inspire a group of people around the table to come up with ideas and possible solutions that they may not have been brave enough to vocalize in the first place. Ensuring that, you know, they have a confidence that it's a safe space to just come up with whatever you think might work here. Uh, and then just kind of, you know, I, I hate the word brainstorming, but because uh, it's used so often, but I like to call it spirited discussion because not everyone will agree. But quite often, it you know, someone will show up and say something. They, everybody just kind of stops and goes, yeah, <laughs> why didn't we think of that? Because it sometimes falls outside of what the typical standard habitual process was that either people don't want to bring it forward for fear of being shut down or they just don't think it will be accepted or they don't want to be the person that brings that forward and then people walk away and go, that was crazy, but you know what? It worked. So yeah, just making sure that people, your staff, your resources, your leaders, whoever it is that you are working with and collaborating with, that they are able to express themselves in the way that they need to and want to, uh, to a finite end of trying to solve a solution or problem. You know, that's amazing. And, and I agree with you. I, I really don't like the, uh, the term brainstorming. I know I've heard it referred to as mastermind, you know, mastermind, like we're getting a mastermind session where, and again, that doesn't really solve it because when you think about mastermind, it's like, okay, so do we have to be masters of something? And what if we're not masters? Can we participate? But I think um, back to all the inventions that were created by accident. And it's because someone came up with an idea and it's like, okay, that didn't work. But oh, what if we turn this into that? And 
it's just amazing the things that come out of those sessions. And I, and I love how you really encourage your team to come forward and say, you know, there's, this is a no judgment zone. It's like, bring your ideas. It doesn't matter what the ideas are. Let's put it on the table. Let's talk about it. Let's hash it out. And let's see if something comes out of it. But you know, what's interesting is that a lot of people are afraid of the unknown and, and not just afraid of the unknown, but if something doesn't work, it's like, oh, well, that didn't work. I'm just going to give up and move on without thinking that, you know, maybe if I looked at it a little deeper, or as you say, turn it upside down and look at it and go, oh, okay, I never thought of that. And how many opportunities are missed because of that? And do you find that you deal with that in some way of the missed opportunities, or is it more that you come up with new opportunities? Yeah, that's a great question. I I think it's a little bit of both. And, you know, just to step back to the comment that you made around individuals or people just being scared of the unknown, absolutely 100% true. That is so obvious when, when I've been also in roles of executing an organizational change management strategy. This whole idea of companies are making changes either to process or to to the people that they have in a particular group or to the technology or to a policy. And your end users just have no idea, what does that mean? What does that mean for me? So ensuring that you are arming your end users with everything that they need knowledge-wise, awareness-wise, and communication the training that they require, maybe new skill sets that get them fully prepared for what's coming at the end of the line and the change will ensure that you don't have missed opportunities. You need to ensure that you are engaging in uh, what what change management does is, is perform, you know, really extensive impact assessments. Um, you want to find out what people are thinking about the change You need to worry about the culture because one of the toughest things to change in an organization that is going through restructuring or or new tools uh, rollout is that they will have a perception of what's going on. They'll have a bias. They'll have habits that they're used to um, hanging on to. And changing those things is a really, really tough part. So that's where being creative, you know, trying to to get them to wrap their heads around the benefit of what you're doing and why is going to help them accept the change, adopt and use the tools and, uh, you know, provide just a better use experience for them. You know, my role as a master coach, I, I've gone into organizations where I've had to, I've had to try and bring people together to an agreement on the level of impact that the change is going to bring. And sometimes leaders don't always agree. One of them might say, oh, it's not a big deal. We're, we're doing this. The, the staff will be okay. And then the other one is thinking, no, 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 this is a really massive change. So I told this, I won't tell you the whole story, but I, I told um, some leaders this story when I was in an interview <laughs> one time about how I created a PowerPoint presentation for two executives that were disagreeing about what the level of impact to a change would be for their staff. And I made it all about one of them, about their routine and their habit. And they would drive the same distance every day. They would come home. They would go down to their comfortable space. I won't call it a man cave. I don't want to, I don't want to use any biases there, but uh, you know, their favorite chair, et cetera, et cetera. And then one day, one of them comes home and his chair is gone. The walls are painted pink. His wife's restructured and repainted everything. And going through this whole PowerPoint really, really slowly and bringing forward all of these things that this individual was accustomed to doing on a day-to-day basis. And then one day everything changed, really kind of brought to light in an analogy, the realization that there was more to be concerned about that the staff was going to be impacted by the change that we were going to make. So that took, number one, some creativity, a whole lot of moxie on my part because I thought <laughs> they're either going to kick me out of this workshop or they're, they're going to sit and they're going to listen. But it ended up being really successful and, and because it was contextual and it was personalized 
to, you know, to what does it mean for you? So now try and imagine what all of these changes you're making in your applications and in your tools, try and imagine what that means for all of your staff and how they're going to deal with that. Oh my goodness. That's an amazing story. And I, I would have, I would have paid big money to have seen his. Construction. <laughs> <laughs> it was awesome. Have you ever thought I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundal and everyone at my company, the sound off podcast network had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network. You know, you mentioned about the Master Coach, and I'd like to talk a little bit about that as well, because... When you were first going through the process and, and you were doing that partway through your 22 years of working as a, well, up till now anyway, um, senior project manager. And I'm, I'm saying you'll probably never stop until you absolutely have to, but I digress there. But master coaching, you were going through the process of going through the coaching program and you needed a, a guinea pig to practice some of your coaching techniques. And so I was a willing victim in a sense of signing up uh, to be a guinea pig. And I remember going through the exercises that you had me do where you were asking very specific questions and then doing an analysis of what you thought that I should be doing. And I have to say that you were really bang on because you identified very quickly that I was, well, first of all, Energizer Bunny and I'm still an energizer bunny, although I'm trying to keep the um, the bunny part on a on a low low down, so to speak. But you also talked about how I tend to not just stick to my garden. So when you think about a bunny and the carrots and everything, so I wasn't just sticking to my garden, but I was jumping all over to all all kinds of different gardens. And I love that analogy, and I loved how you were able to very quickly pinpoint, okay, this is this is what I see. And here are some suggestions for you. And some of your suggestions were to give me poetry. And I'll never forget, there was a poem by Mary Oliver. And I'm trying to remember the name. I want to say something like something summertime. I'm, I'm not getting it. But I, I just remember the poem about being uh, conscious about in the grass and very tactile being so stopping the running and the hopping through the different gardens, but staying still and being very tactile and thinking about where you want to go next. And how was that experience being a master coach and going through that? And of course, working with so many people and being able to provide that guidance for them. How has that worked out for you? And how does that, how do you feel about that? I love that you asked that question because it seems like so long ago since I got my certification, 2016, as a master integral coach. So in the midst of my technology career, I was looking for some, I was always, you know, taking professional development courses and, you know, in the evenings and every once in a while I want to take something really cool. And so I thought, you know, having already done a change management certification, I wanted to evolve and expand my project management skills. And so I started looking for an executive coaching program. And there are several of them. But having always been really interested in um, human nature and connection and how people communicate uh, from a psychological perspective, this program at Integral Coaching Canada really appealed to me because it's largely rooted in the developmental psychology of Ken Wilber. As you can attest and just expressed, a lot of our practices and our coaching programs are rooted in the power of a metaphor, creating a metaphor for our clients, where you are today and where you want to be tomorrow. And I, I loved your example of the Energizer Bunny, which we all love about you. We love that so much about you. But the practice was really about that bunny taking the time within the span of the, any particular garden to, you know, to feel the wind in your ears, to, to smell the flowers, to, you know, feel the sun on your fur, so to speak, right? And just take that moment to 
be still for a minute, not constantly be running and running and running all the time. So, so for me, largely having some of the same qualities, <laughs> Energizer Bunny qualities and the bee flitting all over the place all the time, it was a humbling and huge learning experience for me to also need to step back and slow down and just breathe. And, you know, two and a half years of training, really intense, intense training going from going through three levels of that coaching. But I found huge benefit in being able to show up differently uh, with my teams, with my stakeholders, with my senior executives, and not always appear like I was you know, vibrating a thousand miles an hour, which which I had been told was a little unnerving to some people. And you'll know this too as a, you know, as a teacher of oral uh, communications. Sometimes we're not so conscious of our body language, which can sometimes be emitting so much energy that it puts people off or it, it kind of <laughs> makes them step back a little bit. And through no fault or through no reason to want to rile people up. Some of us just have this like innate crazy level of energy that we have a hard time sometimes harnessing or even just tapering a little bit so that we can show up in a little bit of a softer, quieter um, mode. And so that's where the program really, really helped me. It helped me to really get creative about writing practices out that absolutely hit the mark with most of my clients. And I got to tell you, some of them at first were, they thought that my practices were crazy until they tried them. And I'll give you just one quick example of, I I was working with um, a director who had a stay-at-home husband, a couple of young children, and she was always busy, 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 all the time, and was trying to find ways to slow down, but, you know, was the main breadwinner and then would come home and was doing all the cooking. And, it, you know, in my conversations with her, I could see it was, it was stressing her out and weighing her down. So, but on the flip side, she was the type of individuals that, of individual that felt that only she could do it because she could do it the right way. So wasn't necessarily always willing to take on someone else's help. Her husband was willing to help. Her children were willing to help. So what I did for her, one of her last practices, and she cried when she, uh, when we met after this, and she said, you know, we're still doing this. She, she shared with me weeks later. I had her twice a week when she was going to be ready to go into the kitchen to make dinner for her family. I had her uh, put oven mitts on. And let her family help. And she couldn't take the oven mitts off. So basically, in her kitchen, trying to create this gourmet meal with oven mitts, forced her to let her husband take home the job of the sous chef and cutting salad stuff up. And her children were mixing things up. And it seemed like a ridiculous um, notion. But, you know, when she shared with me how effective it was, and then later shared that her and her family were still using that practice way after her and I had done a coaching engagement together, I thought, you know, whatever it takes to make people slow down a little bit and really enjoy being in the moment, that's what it's going to take. So that was another kind of a crazy, creative way that I went about it, but it was really, really effective. I, you know, when I remember you telling me that story about her wearing the oven mitts and, and I was thinking, how the heck is she going to cook dinner? Well, that was the whole point is that she wasn't supposed to, she was supposed to let others help her. And I've been, um, I've been guilty of that, of refusing help. It's like, no, I got it. I got it. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. And uh, someone said to me, and I can't remember who it was, and it might've even been you, you're actually depriving them of a gift. You're, you're refusing their gift. And I thought, well, what do you mean? I'm, their, their gift to you is they want to help you. They're giving their time, their energy to you, and you're saying no. It, it's like basically saying, no, I don't want that gift. And so I took a step back and, and I thought, you know, you're absolutely right. Why am I, why am I insisting I have to do everything? Because I really don't. And sometimes I feel overwhelmed because I'm doing so much and all I'm doing is hurting myself versus I have all these people who want to help me. 
and I've been able to let go a little bit, not completely everything. (laughs) (laughs) And it's not because I think I can do it better. It's just that I have my own way of doing things. And so for me to explain to someone, okay, I'm doing it this way, it would take a lot more time. So I'm just like, okay, I'm going to do it. But I am getting better. I I promise you I am getting better. Oh, (laughs) I love that you shared that. And it was indeed me that said to you, you know, these people, you're surrounded by people that love you. Just let them jump in and help you. Even if they make such a mess of it, it drives you crazy. You know, they still, you still experience the joy of all being that moment together and, and having them help you. And that makes them feel good, right? So, because the, the last thing people want is to feel like they're not needed. So, you know, and I think part of that stems from the fact that many of us as well are, we want everything to be perfect, right? So, no, this is the way that I would do it. Being okay to watch someone else do something in a way that you're just shaking your head and it's driving you crazy, there's a strength in that, right? And just being able to sit back, have a glass of wine or a coffee, and, you know, just just let them go for it. Absolutely. And, you know, I I just wanted to mention about my, uh, well, my daughter. So my daughter, Crystal, is very, very much like me. You know, lots of ideas, always thinking, always. She's very, I would say she is a little bit more analytical because well she's a nurse and so she needs to be analytical in what she's doing and so on and so forth and very methodical but at the same time I I see her the way she's so creative in what she's doing and then of course there's my granddaughter Lenny she's four and a half I I think of Lenny as a mini me so a mini me of her daughter of my daughter her mom but also a mini me of her grandmother and my, my husband said the other day Lenny is just like you and and I think he was a little afraid. Because <laughs> <laughs> so he's he's got me always come up with these crazy ideas, these harebrained ideas sometimes, and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. But whenever Lenny's come over, she's like, okay, all right, guys, this is what we're going to do. And uh, what if we did this? And I watch her brain and I watch her face and I watch her body and I see how she, and and she'll ask a question and we've never, like her parents and you know, my husband and I, we've never shied away of telling her like it is. So if she asks a question about this, we tell her exactly what it is. And it can be a very technical description. Okay, Lenny, this is blah, 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 blah. And I can see, so she'll, she'll take it in. I can see her face. She's absorbing that information. She's filing it away. And her memory, because um, my memory, well, it used to be better than it is now, but I would have that same memory where I'd go into my database in my brain and I'd go, okay, that, I remember that thing. And she remembers stuff from when she was like two years old and she's four and a half. How does she have that memory power? And I know that they say that children under five are like sponges and that's when they should be exposed to all the things and learning as much as they can because they are at that point where they can do it before they get into school and they start learning, you know, other things. But just the, uh, her ability to remember things is is just amazing. And I marvel at the human brain. So getting back to what I was talking about, left brain, right brain, you know, there are some of us that differ between when we're using one or the other. And sometimes we're using both at the same time, depending on the situation. And so do you find that when you're working with clients, do you find that you tend to use one side more than the other? Or sometimes you find that you have to use both? To be honest, I don't think I even really think about it. I, you know, I, I, I really, I just, I just show up and uh, I show up fully and authentically, you know, finally. It took me a lot of years to, to get there. But I, I don't really, at this point in my career and my personal life, really think about one versus the other. Because for me, I feel like they're just all one thing for me. So whether I show up with blue hair, you know, and almost, you know, full sleeve tattoos, but, uh, you know, really, a really formal suit, uh, <laughs> you know, which, which is way pre-COVID, or sh- show up pragmatically in, in a pair of jeans and a t-shirt to, to a workshop with a group of people, I always just come as I am, which I believe is highly unconventional, but 
deeply technical, pragmatic project manager who also happens to be a really messy artist. And that's how I show up, you know, as, as a project manager. So, I mean, even in my role right now at the University of Saskatchewan, my uh, Zoom backgrounds are all paintings that, that I've done. And I've had numerous people now comment on my, my Zoom backgrounds. It's like, oh, did you get that off the internet? I'm like, no, it's one of my paintings. And they're, just, they're all shocked, right? Because I'm working, you know, on a data analytics project and I'm working on a big procurement project for the EPMO. And, and, but, but it's just all part of who I am. So, you know, I'll show up to a, a, an analytics meeting with my artistic background and my maybe unconventional approach to us trying to work through a process with respect, of course, to, you know, any existing methodology. But I'll always be really vocal about whether that should change or not. I don't know if that makes sense, but I don't really think uh, anymore about the creative versus technical or organized side of myself. I think that they're so ingrained and integrated now and just baked into really who I am as a whole. That that's really just how I show up. And you're absolutely right. I you don't stop to think about okay, so which which version of Sharon am I today? It's that you just, you know, whatever is needed at that moment, you jump in and, and get it done. As you say, you come across as your authentic self. I'm here to let's work together, let's solve it. And it's not that you are necessarily the one that knows the the best or the most, but you're the one that is willing to facilitate the conversation to let's solve the problem. Let's figure things out. Let's see what, what is missing. What's the missing piece. And, and I think that approach tends to draw people in versus someone coming in and, and being very rigid and demanding, okay, you guys, this is what we're doing and we're following these rules. And people don't like that. They, they want to be included. They want to be part of the solution you know, and, and they're the ones with the problems. So they need someone to help them find that solution. And I love that you're the person that is able to come in and, and help them with that. I want to touch a little bit about another um, diversion in your, in your vast, you know, repertoire of, of uh, experience and so on as an end of life doula. Now, first of all, tell us what that is. And also, why did you decide to get into this field? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question because a lot of people ask uh, the same. Again, you know, at a time four or five years ago, I had some extra time. <laughs> Not really, but I, I was looking for something interesting to take on as some coursework, probably largely from watching my, my father die just a really a horrible and not very elegant death uh, through cancer. I started to think a little bit more about probably something you may not know about me, but you know where my where my head was at when I was uh, you know in my early twenties, which was a desire to be uh, an art therapist. I thought, you know, how do I again marry the whole idea of what I currently do for a career with my artistry? And bringing maybe even a deeper element of softness to me as a human being. And I did some research and found some coursework online that centered on being an end-of-life doula, which has a whole lot of different meanings. So a lot of people do these certifications to work really closely with families through critical illness. They do they do respite. They do uh, There's just a myriad of things that you can choose to do. What I wanted to do with that certification was I wanted to use my art space and my artistry to open up an environment where individuals or families could come to my studio to create legacy projects. So if somebody, for example, maybe maybe was, was dying, wasn't able to come with their family, had some materials that they wanted to bring to create an art piece. That's how I wanted to bake that end-of-life doula teaching that I went through a few years ago. Now, I'll be honest in saying I haven't had a whole lot of time to promote that work. It's also very hard to advertise that type of work. It's very sensitive. And I think there's still a lot of people out there who aren't really sure what end-of-life doula does and what end-of-life doula is. But for me, I had a really specific focus that 
ultimately I will probably take on when I retire from my technology career. So on the sidelines, I, you know, have some other things going. I, I'm in the process of, of writing a children's uh, book about death and dying because I think there's a lack of, you know, I mean, there certainly have them out there, but I think that, you know, there's could be some more and I, I might entertain writing one in French as well. And then I had an idea around a line of really unique and cheeky artistic greeting cards that were also in good taste. Because again, I think that there's a lack of materials that you can go and buy when somebody passes away that really speak to the nature of the uniqueness of that person. So you go and buy a sympathy card. They all look the same. They all have the flowers and everything and the doves and everything else that's on them. And I think I like to focus on the niche markets. And so those are some of the creative ideas I had around that, all, you know, all centered around thanatology, it was the study of death and dying, but coming up with some unique options for people, whether it be obituary writing, things like that. My mandate and my focus when I do pick that back up again is going to be around the creative aspect of ensuring that people have as beautiful a death as they had a, a beautiful life. I love that. And and I, I can see your creativity shine in everything that you've talked about, the idea of the, the greeting cards. And you're right. You know, you go buy a sympathy card and, and you're looking for that really specific one and there really isn't. And so you buy the one that you think works the best. But I mean, death doesn't have to be somber and sad. It You know, you talk about their ending should be as beautiful as their life was. And so it's a celebration in a sense. You're celebrating their life. And so the idea of even offering your services to write obituaries, I mean, you know, when my mother-in-law passed away, I mean, I have writing skills and it was tough for me to write the obituary because I'm a little too close to the subject. And so having someone come in and say, okay, tell me the story of your loved one. And so they're telling you the story, you're taking the story, you're weaving the story into the obituary. So it's not just, you know, they worked at, you know, this place for 30 years and they had their hobbies were gardening and they bingo and they had seven grandchildren. What was their passion? What would they, what did they always want to be when, you know, like those kinds of stories. And, you know, I just want to think about when we have our loved ones, we should be asking them to tell us their stories. You know, I think about my mom, she passed away when I was 26 and my dad passed away when I was in my 30s. But I never had a chance to really ask them stories. I knew some stuff. And so the my kids, you know, are asking, so what are the stories? I don't know. And there's no one I can ask. And so I wish I had that opportunity to learn those stories, write them down, share them with the family, share them with Lenny, that this was, you know, your great-grandfather. This is your great-grandmother. This is what she did. And with what you're looking at doing, I love the idea of having those stories and really, again, celebrating their life. And I really hope that you really start doing something with it because, you know, there is a need out there. And you're right, it's hard to advertise. Hey, I've, I'm an end-of-life doula. You know, I can I can write your obituary, you know, call me, uh, you know, like Beetlejuice. <laughs> but I, I really do truly think that there's definitely a need for what you can provide and provide it in such a beautiful and soft and gentle and celebratory way. Thank you. Thanks so much. By the way, Beetlejuice is one of my favorite movies. So when Sam and I were in New York, we went and saw it on Broadway, front row. So just a sidebar. When, when Beetlejuice, you know, when he's in purgatory there, it's quite hilarious. But yeah, I agree. It's a complex and vast and sensitive topic. But I, I really feel there's an opportunity to bring a level of humor and joy to the whole idea of death and dying. And that's kind of my goal. And I have a whole lot of things that I'm thinking through on that end, but really busy right now with project management. So, so thanks for asking about that. I don't talk about it too much. Oh, you're welcome. And speaking of being busy with, so not just, okay, senior project manager, not just master coach, not just artist, not just someone who has put together her ideas and her plans for end of life doula, 
but you are also now an instructor with the University of Winnipeg PACE. So for those that don't know what PACE is, Professional Applied Continuing Education. So what, what courses are you teaching for PACE? I teach one of the core courses that is part of many of the programs there, as you know, having been, you know, one of my influencers in, in trying to get on board there. So I'm teaching the effective written communications course, but I also am teaching in the project management programs. So I teach effective written communications and stakeholder management. And then the part two to that course, which is uh, again centered around project communications and change control. So it's part one and part two of that. So those are the courses I have on my plate right now. And it's uh, the University of Saskatchewan has been really gracious enough to allow me the time to take those courses on when I need to in a particular term. So I'm happy, really happy to be on board there at the University of Winnipeg. And uh, it's a way for me to give back as well, not only to, you know, new immigrants to Canada who are, you know, basically looking to build up their careers. But, you know, having come from that girl that knew nothing in the year 2000 at EISI to having some really great mentors and people that really coached me and guided me in the right direction, it's a chance for me to give back as a, you know, really seasoned project manager to others that are really just starting out their careers in the PM discipline. So that brings me a ton of joy. Oh, and I'm so glad to hear that because I, I love when I'm doing things that bring me joy and, and things that make a difference. And you're right, giving back is coming full circle. You know, having a mentor when you started and you not, as, as you put it, you knew nothing about technology or project management. And now being able to be in a position where you can share your knowledge and expertise and lessons learned along the way because there's what you can learn in school. But then when you get out into the real world, you know, school of hard knocks and, you know, trying things and, and maybe things don't work out, but you just have to keep trying. So when you think about the students that you are teaching in, in with project management and even effective written communications, are you building in some of that aspect of being more creative, me being sort of not going outside the rules, so to speak? Do you find that you're sharing a little bit or, or perhaps encouraging them to be a little bit more creative? Yeah, I certainly do try and encourage that. And I've always been of the the method of trying to inspire by example and trying to engage people by example. But the one thing that I do know is, you know, a lot of these individuals coming to, to PACE for the first time, working through these management and PM programs are professionals, highly educated people from, you know, other countries coming to Canada for the first time, looking for work, looking for more post-secondary education, and very, very committed and focused on their studies. So it's sometimes a little difficult to try and inject crazy creativity, you know, in, in, in certain aspects of, you know, serious project management conversations. But I try and find other ways to help them learn. And one example would be, you know, this is not earth shattering, but because there's so many terms and just so much to take in project management stream. In one of the classes, class four or five for the, the stakeholder management class that I teach, I use this really cool tool online where you can make your own crossword puzzles and you can plug in the words or the definitions and then you hit a button and it creates a crossword puzzle for you. So I created a crossword puzzle for the students and they did it online, you know, when we were, this is, you know, during COVID, but I put them in breakout rooms for about an hour in groups of four, four or five, and they had such an amazing time doing that. And the questions were not all easy, but almost every single one of the clues and the responses tied back to a particular section or a chapter or an area or focus area of one of the two textbooks we were using or one of the terms that, it, you know, would come up in the PMBOK or any of their other readings on project management. They loved that. And ultimately, it was such a good reminder for them of, you know, the terms and the definitions behind the terms, but it gave them opportunity to have a little bit of fun. 
in a group setting. So I will actually, I will plan to do that again this fall in October when I am in class. I will get that. I will print some. I know we're, we're all against printing these days, but I will print the crosswords, six sheets of paper and get them to get into a circle, tiny groups and work through those through the course of one of uh, my classes. And that was a creative way to not have to just put all the words on slides and go through them and define them, right? Which gets a little onerous and a little bit boring, frankly, for for the students, right? They're all adults looking to be engaged and inspired and influenced. I love that idea. I absolutely love the idea of doing a crossword puzzle because I do crossword puzzles every day. I do the Sudoku. I do the the Wordle, anything to keep my brain active and, and, and engaged. So I'm teaching a, a class right now up here at Fundamentals. And the, tomorrow was their last class. I put together a quiz of, you know, multiple choice questions. But I'm thinking now, geez, if I had done a crossword puzzle as their final assignment, that would have been so cool. So I'm going to file that away and I'll, I'll get that information from you. Well, where do you get that subscription? Yeah. I love that idea. And that's, that's something different. That is fun. Yeah, well, it was a ton of fun. And uh, likewise, you know, I've been doing the New York Times crossword puzzle and the weekend paper for decades and always like a good crossword puzzle. I think it's just a good mental exercise. And it also allowed, you know, the teams to help each other because not everyone knew the answers. So then there's, you know, some really good dialogue and conversation happening. And then they quite a few of the clues they didn't get. So then we had a conversation as, you know, the entire class and we talked through the clues that they didn't get. And yeah, it was a great exercise. I would do it over and over again, for sure. It makes me think something like the the escape room. Like I've never actually been there, but I, I know that the premise is that you have an hour to solve the clues and, you know, escape. And then obviously nothing wrong happens to you if you don't escape, but there's the, the bragging rights when you do actually end up escaping. So it makes me think about them doing the crossword puzzle and not able to finish it within the time and making sort of a contest out of it, you know, because, you know, students tend to be very competitive. Oh, they were. Yeah, they got very competitive. And, you know, I thought it was a good opportunity for them to also work together. I, I know outside of class, they get together and they share information and such. But I mean, so many of them are focused independently on their work and their assignments that they need to get in on time, right? So they don't often have the chance to get into groups to do something fun, do a fun activity. So so it served a whole lot of different purposes, not only from a collaboration, communication, and a basically a partnership perspective, but also provided them with some, you know, an intellectual exercise they had to think through. And they weren't all easy, so they had to think through it as well. So it touched upon a whole lot of criteria that I was looking to hit during the course of that class. I love that. And I can imagine that students must have been thrilled doing something different. And, you know, they get the same old, same old. Everybody does slides. Everybody, you know, has different words. Everybody has, we have the rubrics and the assignments and everybody has it. And even when students come into the class for the first time, it's how do you come up with something different and how they can introduce themselves because they get the same. So what's your, what's your name? Where are you from? You know, what do you plan to do? What do you hope to get out of the course? And it's the same old same old, same old, same old. So whenever you can inject any kind of creativity, any kind of humor, giving them that sense of joy, it get, makes them kind of sit up a little bit and go, oh, okay, this is going to be a little different. And it gets them excited about what can come next, which I really, really love. Let's talk about our love of coffee and wine. Yeah. I mean, everybody knows my story of coffee. So what's your story of coffee? Oh my, oh my goodness. I started drinking coffee probably when I was in high school. My birthday's in the summer. I was 15 in grade 10. And, you know, I still remember going to the Red Top on St. Mary's Road with, you know, with my friends and having coffee and lunch. And and that morphed into going to socials when I was 18, 19 years old. For those that know what socials are, I think Manitoba is the only province that has them. You know, and then going to the country kitchen on Main Street, it's not even there anymore, and drinking coffee till three in the morning. And then as I got older, I got more discriminating and started drinking better coffee, (laughs) better and better coffee, and grew a love of espresso and fell in love with having, you know, 
espresso and pastry in Paris and, you know, just all kinds of really cool experiences with coffee. And every morning when I get up, I tend to my Prince, Picasso, my cat. And then the second thing I do is load up my smeg and get the coffee brewing. And uh, yeah, I just, I love a good cup of coffee, but I won't drink coffee past 11 in the morning because it keeps me awake. I know you drink coffee 24 hours a day. I don't know how you do it, but I, I love coffee. I really do. I wouldn't say 24 hours a day, but I, I can drink coffee later in the day and it doesn't affect me very much. I mean, I don't know if it's going to change when I get older, but yes, I, I do love my coffee. And I know that you and I, whenever we get together, we always have coffee, unless we're having wine. Shh, <laughs> <laughs> don't tell. It's okay. <laughs> no, we, we, uh, we actually have the same taste in wine as well. We love our red wine. And uh, I sometimes vary because I, I like a Shiraz and sometimes I'll have a Cab Sauv, but it just really depends. And I think you know, when you think about, you know, my podcast connecting over coffee, it's conversations over coffee, but you're also connecting over wine, you know, so it's a different kind of connection because typically when you're connecting over coffee, it's, you know, in the morning or it's lunchtime and you're a little bit more energetic and you're talking about your day and things that you're going to be doing. And when you're having a glass of wine, typically, unless you're having wine at lunch for whatever reason, but typically it's a little later in the day. You know, it's either at supper or after supper and you're sitting and, and sipping your wine. And it's a different kind of conversation because I think, and it might be because of the wine, but <laughs> you're you're a little bit more <laughs> relaxed. You're a little bit more at ease. And it's almost like you're just easing into the rest of the day and, you know, kind of reminiscing about what your day was like and even just sitting there and not even saying anything, just sipping our wine and enjoying the company. Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, it's, it's it's definitely in the title of your podcasts. And, you know, you mentioned the word a lot. And it's just so accurate that really it's about connecting. You know, no matter what the beverage is, I think that the beauty of getting together for a cup of coffee or the wine, <laughs> well, let's focus on the coffee for now, is really the just the beautiful social aspect of sharing a cup of coffee with somebody Knowing that that cup, it's not really just a cup of coffee. It's a moment in time where you're connecting with another human being on an emotional level and having a conversation and sharing of yourself with someone else and receiving that or the person equally. And so, you know, those are moments that are the most important to me in life. We all have these grand experiences you know, I've been on some amazing trips in my lifetime, and I've had the pleasure and the opportunity and, you know, humbly the great chance to go to many places. But I think when COVID hit, it became so much more obvious how these tiny day-to-day -day moments that we have with our families, with our friends, with our relatives that were taken away from us really highlighted the fact that those are the moments that make up the best part of our lives. And, you know, not being able to meet someone for a cup of coffee through the height of COVID, being here by myself, it was more horrible than I ever thought it would be. Just that we take those things for granted, going to the corner coffee shop with, you know, loved ones and, and our friends that we love. We take all of that for granted. And when that disappeared, it really highlighted just the importance of those beautiful moments that are usually shared around a cup of coffee. Yes, and you're absolutely right. And and those were lost moments. And we need to cherish the moments and embrace them and seek out those moments whenever we can, whenever we can go instead of saying, oh, I'm too busy, I don't have time. It's like, you know, we can make time to sit down, have a cup of coffee, have a glass of wine, chit chat, catch up on our day, and just check up on each other, you know, check. So how are you doing? No, really, how are you doing? And let's, let's talk and let's find out what's going on in our lives because it's so easy to get into the habit of, you know, busy, 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 and I'm too busy and I don't have time for anything, but getting back to slowing down, taking those moments to enjoy that cup of coffee instead of like, you know, throwing it down and running out the door 
and sometimes sit in quiet in the morning or doing your crossword puzzle or playing with your crazy cat or whatever it is, it's, it's taking time for those moments because those moments are precious. And we need to find that time and make the time. One of the episodes I did actually a few episodes ago was making space. It's making space for yourself, but it's also making space and making room for others and not just physical space, but space in your heart, space mm-hmm. in your life. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Yes. And it's about those connections. And I am so, I want to say grateful, but grateful doesn't answer everything. I want to say I'm so grateful for our friendship. I'm so thankful that we came into each other's lives in that moment when we were at Pearl's. I think it was an open house that she was having. But just the connections over the years through different variations of, you know, you moving in different places and studios and me, you know, going through different jobs. And whenever I have a crazy idea, I'm always like, hey, Sharon, I've got this crazy idea. What do you think about this? And you come back and you're like, oh, I love it. Great ideas. And it gets back to the Energizer Bunny again. But it's because we're almost two peas in a pod in a sense that we're so full of energy that we have you know, energy to burn, ideas galore. And that's what the world needs. The world needs people like us. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. I'm, I'm humbled. I'm blessed to know you. You know, I, I watch you closely and just want you to know that I'm a huge fan and really appreciate the opportunity to have this conversation with you. Of today. course. And you know that I'm a huge fan of yours and I absolutely love working with you and I love everything that you do and I cheer you on. I'm, you know, your biggest fan. And yeah, I'm so blessed that we have had this chance to catch up and have this conversation and, and share how wonderful you are with the world. Thank you. Thank you so much. So after hearing what Sharon had to say about all the wonderful experience that she's had in her life, her ability to become a senior project manager, master coach, end of life doula, artist, and just this beautiful, energetic, creative person. I want you to think about something that you can do for yourself. So until next time, when you think that you have no options, when you don't think that you can try something different, dig deep into that creative self because we all have that creativity inside of us. Even those that work in jobs that are very technical, accountants, IT managers, everyone has that creativity inside of them. I encourage you to find that spark and really cherish sharing what you can offer to the world. Thanks so much for listening. If you like Coffee with Jenny B and want to know more, connect with Jenny on Instagram at Coffee with Jenny B. That's Jenny with a G. Until then, all you need is joy and more coffee. What happens when we play outside? We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's take this outside. A new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance and everyday life. Let's take this outside. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at ivisonvoice.com slash podcast.